Hello and welcome to the Recreation to Recreation podcast, the show where we explore the stories of people who have turned the activity that they love into positive change for our world. My name is Jen, and I'll be your sidekick on this adventure as we treasure hunt for gems of insight and wisdom while exploring the planet with our inspiring guests. For today's adventure, we are heading to Armenia and beyond with Val to explore his world of thru-hiking, human kindness, and trail development. Hi, Val. How's it going? Hey, yeah, good thing. Thanks for having me on. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I'm really excited to explore with you today. And I always like to start these conversations by getting people to tell us where they are, what it's like there, just kind of get us situated in your world. I'm in North Wales. I, I, I live in North Wales. been here for a couple of years now. It's very cold. I've been away for five weeks in a few different places, uh, Lebanon, Greece, and Croatia. It's been really nice and hot there. So the clock system coming back, and it's pretty pretty, pretty chilly. Having to put a jumper on isn't, isn't so nice. <laughs> For sure, a little bit of a rough change once you got back home, but wonderful that you got to go away for five weeks. So is that something that you get to do regularly? Recently, not so much. The, the, the last two years, I taken a bit of a break from doing big long trips. We decided to go do a, a part-time master's while working full-time. And, and that took two years to complete. So just didn't really leave much time to do other stuff. But I finished that in August. Congratulations. Thanks. The first thing I wanted to do was go away for a bit, bit of a longer stretch. Just feel a bit more human again. <laughs> yeah. Reset the system. And it's funny because I think I find it interesting when people say, I'm doing a part-time thing on top of a full-time thing I'm like that math just doesn't seem to work, <laughs> to work yeah right. no it, it it doesn't it doesn't work it's really really unpleasant <laughs> no doubt but hopefully going and doing that is gonna serve you going forward in whatever you decide to do right so yeah yeah for sure it, you know in isolation the course is fantastic that's the university that's the experience it was sort of the stacking of everything on top which was uh which is difficult and made for sort of more difficult experience. Where did you end up going? I uh, did a UCL in London, uh, research master's in spatial data science. Oh, great. Were you in the geography department? No, I was in CASA, which is a collaboration of some geographers, some data scientists, some software engineers. They have everything. But the focus is, is on cities, really, urban areas. Okay, very cool. I did my undergrad and my master's at UCL in the geography department, so that's why I was asking. Oh, oh right. Cool. I, I thought that was a weirdly specific question. Yeah, it was yeah. a small world. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I was really grateful. We had a lot of spatial data and obviously GIS courses that were part of the undergrad, so yeah, it was interesting to have that crossover. Cool. Okay. Well, before we go too far down any road, I like to start these interviews with weird and wonderful questions. I find that they're generally just really hilarious. They don't really have anything to do with anything, but they can sometimes just get us laughing. So hopefully you are up for that. Sure. Yep. First question. You've discovered a new island upon which you can build your own society and make the rules. What's the first rule you'd put into place? Um, God, I don't. I don't even know. I, 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 w I wouldn't put a rule in to start with. I, I don't know. I just yeah, I wouldn't. Cool. I wouldn't put a rule. In. Okay, great answer. Why does rain drop but snow falls? I guess 
rain, 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 rains faster. I mean, it's, it's just heavier, right? So, uh, move faster. I don't know. I, that's not that. That's not. I know you're not asking for for a literal answer, but but uh, that's the way my brain works. That's perfect. That's the fun thing about these questions is they're just so random, <laughs> and I just yeah. love to see what comes out of people's brains. I think you're going down a really cool route there. Of you know, yeah, rain is heavier, snow is lighter. Why wouldn't it drop rather than fall? Yeah, I like that. What would you rather do? Ask a question to someone who doesn't want to answer it, or give an answer someone doesn't want to hear. Ask the questions. Uh, mm-hmm. What is something that would be much better if you could change its color? Much better if you change its color. Hmm. I mean, I was just I was just in Croatia, and Croatia is absolutely beautiful. Mm. However, when you're I don't know if you've ever been, but the 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 landscape up there, and like in the mountains, and the rock is beautiful, beautiful colored limestone. But there's, there's a lot of dirt sort of mountains. A bit more greenery, a bit more like here in North Wales. Mm-hmm. A little bit of contrast. Yeah. Yeah. No, Wales is so beautiful and lush. And I haven't been to Croatia, but I've seen many photos and it it does look beautiful. So great answer. Perfect. Okay. This one I'm particularly looking forward to. Which Disney princess would make the best spy? Oh, I can't even answer that because I can't, I can't even think of, think of a Disney princess. <laughs> 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 Is, is, is Cinderella one? I, 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 yes. I even, ding, yeah, ding, okay. ding. Correct. There, yep. there, there, we, there we go. Let's, let's, let's do that. She basically spent a lot of time cleaning and, and moving around the house. She probably had good secret passageways. Let's go with that for sure. <laughs> What's the longest time that you've gone without showering or bathing? Oh, God. That I can definitely give you an answer there. <laughs> 16 days, which was absolutely horrible. That, that was in Kyrgyzstan. I've done a lot of 10-day stretches for sure as well. Mm-hmm. You, you, get, you get to this threshold where uh, you've got clean clothes on after you know your first day. You, you can smell the end, of the end of the day, maybe the next day. After three, four days, you kind of get used to it. But then after a week, two weeks, it, suddenly the scent sort of builds up and you can smell it again. <laughs> Everybody's getting a little bit of insight into these through hikes that you've been doing and maybe why they were solo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, we've all been there. I've done some trekking myself as well and had some, I don't know if you could call them a bath, but just rolling in puddles. <laughs> mm. yeah. And that counts. So <laughs> at least yeah. it does in my world. So, but yeah, okay, well, you're safe. You're out of the weird and wonderful questions. But thank you for playing along with me there. Now we're hopefully into some easier stuff because you are your own expert, so we can answer <laughs> some questions based on your personal experience. So let's roll into that. I'd love to start with a bit of an origin story, you know, just getting to know you better. Where did you grow up? What were you passionate about growing up? And what did that look like? I grew up in London, born, born and raised in London. So I was really in, sort of into academics, really, math and physics, which is you know, ultimately why I've gone, kind of gone down this route of engineering and then eventually data science. Academics is definitely a core focus. I did a lot of rugby as well growing up. Later on, I mean, some of my, my father uh, is from Kosovo. So we, we would do sort of trips into the mountains there, which are really stunning, sometimes in summer, sometimes in, in winter conditions. I, yeah, I mean, I just always loved it, really. And when I went to university in Bristol, I joined a club there called Youth, which is the Expedition Society, doing lots of weekend trips away, 
through different parts of the UK, predominantly walking and a bit of scrambling, that sort of thing. Yeah, I sort of just got more interested in doing like more challenging things, really. Longer walks in different places. And yeah, I mean, it took me down a road of through hiking and eventually doing rock climbing and trail development, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I can imagine living in Wales, you've got a lot of good hill walking there for training for some of these longer hikes that you've done. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a funny thing. Is so when I was a when I was a student, so I, I went, did my undergrad at Bristol. I, I would go maybe two, two, three weekends a month, go somewhere in the UK, often North Wales or mm-hmm. the Lake District for walking. But this was uh, this was, what 2015 to 2018 or something like that. And then I, you know, graduated. By then, I had done these long trips to Armenia. But, but actually, since living in North Wales, I've only been in North Wales now for for two years, and I've not really been doing much long distance walking. Well, I mean, any really at all. Kind of got obsessed with with rock climbing the last few years, which also happens to be fantastic in in North Wales and you know mm-hmm. world class destinations. That so obviously, I did some research before we got into this conversation that it seems to be this and you kind of just solidified it a little bit for me but the through hiking and the rock climbing trail development all of this has really been in your free time yeah yeah for sure i I absolutely love being outside Uh, i love being in the mountains you know more than anything it's the best it's the thing that makes me feel the best you can experience all ranges of of emotions especially on these kind of big trips where you know, the, the the lows are lower and the highs are higher. At one point, I thought I, I was a bit disillusioned when I did my undergrad. I did it in engineering, design and focusing in, in civil engineering, and I, I I didn't really enjoy it very much. Realized quite early on that I didn't want to spend my career designing concrete columns day in day out. Yeah, fair um, enough. <laughs> Not for everyone. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I finished the undergrad and. During the undergrad is when I went and did my first big through hike through Armenia and Georgia, which we can talk about later. But mm-hmm. after doing that, I quite seriously thought about just going down the route of being a mountain guide mm-hmm. and or an instructor or something like that. I, I, I you know went through the the route of getting my mountain leader, which is a very basic qualification in the UK, mm-hmm. but it's that first like stepping stone going down that road. I took a bit, I did a bit of uh, guiding. I took some people out on the Armenia trail. And though I kind of en- though I enjoyed it in some ways, I, I just realized I just, that is not the context in which I enjoy the outdoors because to, to guide people on things, you're going to be taking them realistically on things you're usually comfortable on or you've mm-hmm. done before, that sort of thing. Yeah, that's a big generalization, but generally that is not what I enjoy doing. I, I like to be sort of pushing myself and doing something which I don't actually know if I can finish it and having new experiences and, and not really knowing what's going to happen. In what I experienced, you, you couldn't really do that as a, working as a guide or an instructor. I'm, and I'm, you know, I'm sure there's high level ones who do do that, but. Yeah, of uh, course. I think yeah. in any situation where you're leading people outdoors, you're curating an experience for them, right? It's like an organized adventure, which adventure is full of 
massive <laughs> question marks and yeah. needs yeah. to pivot and be flexible and have things go wrong. And it's not to say that unorganized led adventures, that is not the case, but for the most part, that's really what you're trying to avoid. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So I can definitely resonate with that just from my own experience of doing expeditions and then also leading expeditions. It's a very different dynamic. And facilitating that experience for other people means that sometimes it can lose that edge that can be the reason why we got into things in the first place. And I think that that's something that's probably really helpful for people to hear when they're considering making their passion into their potential career to kind of really look at the reality of what that might look like, depending on the path. And I mean, there's so many different paths that we can take to doing that. But for you to basically take that time, go down that route a little bit, and then reflect on it and be like, mm, is this actually allowing me to live this passion out in the way that speaks to me the most? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, and then on top of it, I... I do have this interest in, in math and physics from, from when I was younger and wanted to pursue something in that area. And uh, I, I just enjoy using my brain in, in, in that kind of technical way as well. But you don't, you know, you don't get that when you're on these, on these trips. It, it's only a balance I've been trying to, I, I've, I've struggled to find actually in the last few years. When, you know, at the start, I was, when I was doing the undergrad, I went maybe too far one way where I was doing you know, sacrificing all other things just to focus on these on these adventures, which I would say, you know, I, in no way do I regret. They were absolutely amazing, but I don't think it would work long term for me to just do it that way. So then I went down the other road of of working and saving up to do these trips, but then COVID happened, then it things got delayed, and then I found myself doing this masters part time in quotation marks and having no free time really to do any of these big trips, which is I enjoy my job, but part of the, um, in, in my mind, originally, what made me comfortable taking a, a stressful job is that you have something to look forward to, which in my case, where these potentially taking out two months at a time in the summer, even if it's, you know, unpaid leave or something just to go mm. do these trips. But yeah, I mean, th that's something I've struggled to find the last couple of years. But, you know, now it's done the, the master's, I'm hoping to yeah, find that balance a bit better. Yeah, for sure. You're back down to just full time rather than full time plus part time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's so interesting. And I, I was just thinking back to how we met, which was very quick. I think it was in 2017, somewhere around there, where we ended up both presenting alongside one another at a Tales of Adventure event in London. Yeah. And I was talking about my cross Atlantic and you were talking about your through hike. So it's cool to me to be sitting here with you however many years later <laughs> and having this conversation now that you've done a few more things as well. And so I'd love to just hear a little bit more and for the benefit of the listeners as well. How did you end up deciding that you wanted to do this big, it was a world first through hike, right? Yeah, as far as known. Yeah. In terms of doing a first crossing of the TCT. Yeah, it was the, it was the first one. But and you did this during your undergrad, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. So you had this background of being a part of the club at university. You've been going on these trips. And then you kind of went from that to this massive solo hike. Um, so I'm just wondering how, how that all came to fruition. How did you even 
begin to start planning it because I had a peruse on your website and you've got a fantastic page, which basically outlines advice for anybody now wanting to do that, which actually when I was reading through it, I was like, wow, this is actually really helpful for anyone who wants to plan something like this to just give a general structure to how you would begin to plan a through hike. Yeah, you're talking about the the advice page. For, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean that that was a that was me after after I finished the the route. It was a way of almost like I, I just felt like I had too much this information in my head, and I just needed to to get it out somehow and just uh, write it down because I knew eventually I had to get it. And mm-hmm. if other people want, were going to come to me with questions, I just wanted to have the, the answers written down somewhere. But yeah, I mean it, it's very much how I planned it and what I thought of and I was when I wrote it the the Transcaucasian Trail hadn't actually been published yet because when I when when I went and did it the read wasn't complete but yeah I mean now you can go onto their website and they they give you the the GPS trails and they give you some some other information I think oh you know the information still stands but yeah maybe more useful for people for individuals who are actually trying to do something somewhere else and want to think about the kind of questions that they're worth considering really yeah i'm curious has anyone ever reached out to you for advice uh yeah yeah it's always quite cool because each year at the same time of year i I get a a few emails from from people and it's always around march april time february march (laughs) april and it'll be from some some random person being like "Ah, i I came, came, came across your website i'm hoping to try and cross the caucuses um you share with me your, your GPS data. <laughs> it, mm. It's always the same thing, you know, and then they'll have some other kind of questions. But, but yeah, it's quite cool. I mean, uh, I, put, I, I put this page out a few months after I did it in 2017. It, it was a matter of months, you know, two, three months later, a woman called Leo reached out to me. She was interested in repeating the route. She was the first person to contact me. Nobody's ever asked me for that kind of information before at the time. I just kind of didn't think it was going to happen, to be honest. But I gave her all the information and put her in touch with Tom at the, the TCT. And then a few months later, she's on the trail and completed it for the, the following summer after I did it, which is really cool. Cool. Did you ever meet up and chat and compare notes? Yeah, yeah. Actually, I, I went out and joined her on the end of her through hike. That summer, I went back to Armenia and was actually uh, working with the uh, one of the trail building NGOs out there called Trail for Change, who, who work with the Transportation Trail. But how, how I ended my, my through hike, it went through this, this national park right on the, on the west coast of Georgia, on the Black Sea. It's really, really dense rainforest. It's really wet all year round. The hypothetical route that the TCT guys had, had uh, handed over to me was a best guess that it would go through this area you know uh, they they would like to go through there but but nobody had scouted anything through the national park i had some old soviet maps to go by but uh long story short it was impossible to follow the the, the old tracks and the soviet map through that area because they were completely overgrown they were so dense i didn't have anything basically to cut through so i, I took a bit of a diversion and took some other frankly a bit of a crappy detour to go around on some four by four tracks. I really wanted to go back and try and like correct that line and sort of find this sort of like natural path through that landscape. Yeah, sure. Um so yeah, me and Leah joined up to do that, 
we brought machetes this time. Yeah, went went straight through this <laughs> this, this rainforest. We managed to find the the, the old tracks, but uh, it was hard work. It was really mm-hmm. hard work going going through that. But it's, it's quite amazing though how you could be a meter, two meters away from the jeep track, the old Soviet track, mm-hmm. and and you would not know it was it was that dense. But, but then when you're on it. It's very clear that you're on it, and it's, it's properly benched out. It's just it's been completely overgrown. How interesting um, is that? Yeah, it kind of leads me to asking, what are the realities of trail building? Because we're so fortunate here in Canada, in the UK, across many many countries, we take trails for granted that they're there, that they've been created, that we've got somewhere to follow. We can just go, we're going to go for a walk today. And you pull out your phone for the All Trails app and you explore a trail. But yeah. the idea of you're mapping them and then creating these trails, what does that actually look like? It can look like lots of different things, really. I mean, there's there's a lot of different ways that you can put a trail together maybe worth answering your first question first before I get to that, because it sort of provides some context on it. You asked me how I got into doing this. I had a really bad uh, knee injury, dislocated my my knee and started part of the kneecap. Then it happened a few more times. I had to have reconstruction surgery of the ligaments to hold the kneecap in. I don't know why the thing I had in my head sort of driving me through the, the physio and what I was really keen looking forward to was that I wanted to go for a really long walk and do a, do a through hike. Mm. I think, you know, part of that was because I was, you know, disillusioned with uh, the undergrad and then being outdoors and that sort of thing. And back then I had a bit of a romanticized notion maybe of, of what, <laughs> what a through hike would be like. Yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> they did, so they had, they had estimated that, that I'd have a full recovery or 90% recovery or something after 12 months. Just around the 10-month mark, I was starting to think, like, you know, what, where am I actually going to go? I was feeling good, and it was all going well. I was planning to go do the Pacific Crest Trail in the U.S. It just Something was, just wasn't quite right. Like, I, I just thought, thought like, oh, yeah, it's probably the good one to go do is my first through-hike because it's trailblaze. There'll be so much information out there. But but I don't know. I it just I, I wasn't that interested in it, to be honest. I probably would have gone and done that just by chance. I was on a flight. The in-flight magazine, the front cover, was this picture of a guy standing in some landscape that looked quite strange, a volcanic landscape. And, and I opened it, and I never look at those in-flight magazines. It was an interview with this guy called Tom and Paul, who were building this long-distance trail through. The Caucasus and through mm. Armenia and, and Georgia, and it was really kind of a wild idea because there is no hiking trails, or at that time there were no hiking trails. This was back in 2017. There were no published hiking trails, no purpose-built hiking trails in, in the entire region. Whatever there was, information given by the tourist boards were trails and quotation marks that just followed roads or you know muddy four by four tracks and, and that sort of thing. Tom and Paul both independently had this idea to build a long-distance trail and joined forces to create this one that joins Armenia and Georgia. It really sort of clicked in my head because this was exactly what I wanted to do because it was something more than just going for a walk. It was, at the time, Tom and Paul had only scouted, I think, 60% of the route. They had only looked at 60%. The 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 remaining 40%, they had no idea what to do. It was really just a line on a map at the time in Google Earth. The the route wasn't finalized. 
And then, and then there was also, you know, the part that nobody had done it from start to finish, partly because it didn't exist. And so this kind of a, the idea sort of like clicked for me in that I could go do this long walk, but I could really, it could be really like a contribution in some way where I could mm. get to, to discover where the trail goes, where it would naturally go and, and feed back into the project and mm-hmm. contribute to that and, and help build this long distance trail. That kind of brings me on to what you then asked, which is about what does it look like designing or building a trail? Mm-hmm. Um, from uh, You can kind of look at it from my side and then from the TCT side. From my side, how I planned the route was Tom and Paul gave me whatever information that they had. Some of that was scouted GPS trails where they had walked some sections mm-hmm. and had some feedback on, you know, this was good, but this part wasn't so good. I suggest we find a better path because either it wasn't so interesting or it was just a really bad trail, you know, fallen apart or overgrown or, or, or so on. And then some of the other information they gave me was like, hey, we just need to get from A to B. We don't really know how to do that. <laughs> See what you think. So I, I kind of took that information, whatever that they had scouted and were happy, I included that. Whatever that they wanted to replace or change, develop or or connect from A to B, I took whatever advice they gave and then also did my own research looking at Google Earth. So satellite imagery in these areas are your friend, providing there's no tree cover. And then also really important are the, the Soviet maps. What makes it harder for this area is that Partly why there's no trails is there because there are no properly public topo maps for Armenia and Georgia. The last ones were from the 1970s. Oh, interesting. When, when the Soviet Union mapped the region, mm-hmm. and and obviously topography doesn't change you know significantly. It's still accurate in that way. Right. But the what those things are your networks, so your 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 road network, your path network. Sometimes mm-hmm. they might still be there. Sometimes you might. Having a new settlement there built on top of it, mm-hmm. or sometimes it's still there, but it's collapsed. You've had landslides or it's just overgrown, like in that rainforest. It's not something you can really rely on entirely, but also you just kind of need to go there as well and just experience it. What I did when I was planning it was I overlaid, I figured out a way to overlay the Soviet maps on top of Google Earth and then, you know, trace these old routes that I thought might still be there or I could visually see them as well on, on Google Earth, I'd include that as an option for that section of A to B. But I tried to have a couple of different options always so in case I got there and it was very obvious that this option, option A is not, not there anymore. So, right. My hypothesis uh, was incorrect. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then when I was there on foot, I used this app which was recommended to me by Tom and Paul, and is how they, they collected all the data they sent me. It's called OSM Tracker. Mm-hmm. You can just download it onto your phone. And it, it works a bit like Strava on a basic level, where you know you just click start, and it traces your GPS data. But what's really useful is it has like a, um, a button screen almost, where you can then tap it, and it will save the information that from this point, it's a, a walking trail, or it's a 4x4 track, tarmac road. and then and then the same thing for water sources, you know, you just click water source or oh, wow. uh, things like that or bridge or, you know, dead end or, and then you can also add information and say whether the trail's overgrown or, or, or things like that so that whatever information you give back is geolocated. 
and you're not sending, you know, paragraphs of information saying, oh, from this bit to this bit, it's overgrown, but from this bit to this bit, it's okay. So whatever I gave to Tom and Paul was their GLR cases. They knew this 100 meters of trail was a, an old Soviet track that was overgrown, which then transitioned into this nice walking trail or animal track or whatever. Yeah, I mean, that, that app is very useful. What you can do from there is actually a pixel use case for is to then upload into OpenStreetMap, which would, the guys did do afterwards. No, I was just thinking about how the advent of technology and just how it's changed over the years and that there's apps on our phone now for pretty much everything and that there was something that served you in this. I remember when I did my first ever expedition during my undergrad, which was 2009. Phones were still pretty, pretty basic back then. Yeah. yeah maybe, <laughs> maybe snapped some pictures, but apps were not a thing. I had this little handheld device called Spot, and it mm. meant that I could send my location to a select group of people on an email list to just basically let them know I was still alive. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And then it had an SOS button for whoever was going to pick up my SOS beacon yeah. so that they could come and find me. And I was in some pretty remote cuts. It's just so interesting to me now that there are all of these things that just make it so easy for us. You're doing the challenging part by being there, but the data collection that you can do in real time. If you were collecting that data, did you have data coverage that you were able to provide that to the app and save it offline or online? Like, how did that work? So as you're doing it, it's saved locally just onto your phone. You can choose to publish it straight away if you want onto OpenStreetMap. So so all the buttons and and like all the tags that you use are OpenStreetMap tags. So you can upload straight from the app and contribute into the OpenStreetMap project. Mm-hmm. But I didn't do that while I was doing it because the idea was to feed into the, the Transcaucasian Trail project. And one, we didn't want to start publishing sections of trail that could mislead someone mm-hmm. um, on the quality, basically, because the, the areas that I was going through were really remote and the, the trail quality was hugely variable from decent to going a kilometer an hour at the most kind of thing really sure. really seriously over, over ground so we didn't want to directly upload stuff but what the tct were doing and are doing is that they take that information so it's almost a bit like a filtration process that happens first they collect the data they clean it make sure just the the bits that are ready to go on go on and then, and then they they upload it to OpenStreetMap. And, and there's been some kind of spin-off project from the tct one of our friends Alessandro, so he was involved in the early early stages, very much focused on the, the data side and dealing with the, the geographical data. He's actually produced the first you know, public topographical map for the region now since the seventies. Wow. Um, and you can you can buy them now online and from his company. They're absolutely fantastic maps. Very useful, but also just like really quite beautiful to look at. Um, he's done a really good job with them. Those uh, maps are, would not have been possible without all the data collection from everyone who's gone and done any kind of scouting on the TCT. A real collaborative process. It's gone full circle now because if you're going to go do the TCT, you don't need to you can look at Soviet maps or, or use a Google Earth like I did. You can you can just use these top of maps that Alessandro sells and also use the GPS data from TCT website. 
Pretty amazing. And so does the TCT do any active cleaning of trails or maintaining, or is it more so just about providing a a resource for people to... Part of what the TCT does with the data that people like me have collected or are the people who've scouted or done the trail. Back then when I did it, for, for sections that were... There really was no good existing option that was either A, worth cleaning, or B, existed. They would build a trail from scratch for that section. And before doing the the TCT, and I had done a lot of hiking and used a lot of trails, but I never really comprehended how how a trail really gets built. You just kind of think, oh, it's been there forever. Right. (laughs) People have been using that forever. It's like... But actually, it's really hard work. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, my first experience doing any trail building was actually during my through hike. So quite cool. The, the year that I went to do the first through hike was also the year that the TCT first started taking international volunteers to first start cleaning some of the sections that, that they had scouted and were fairly sure that the trail could go through this bit. So taking volunteers and I managed to time it. So. I would reach Dilijan, which is the area where that trail building was beginning. I managed to reach that place just as the first cohort of trail builders started. I just spent two weeks there working with them, doing the trail, and then I kept on walking afterwards to finish, to finish the route. And then I went back the following summer after doing the trail and, and, and spent, I think it was three and a half months or so, working on a specialist trail crew, me and three, three other guys on the NDA. The, the work really differs. Sometimes it's expanding an animal track or an ancient trail, getting rid of, uh, you know, loose rock or uh, getting rid of vegetation. And when you find one of these old trails, it's really cool because it feels like you're sort of uncovering like a bit of history and, mm-hmm. and um, putting it out there again for people to use. So earlier, sometimes there's, there's no really good existing way to get from it, um, one point to another that isn't on a muddy jeep track used by loggers or, or that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so then you build a trail from complete scratch. Dilijan, where I was talking about the first trail camp, was a area where we were really doing a lot of trail building from scratch. And so how that looks roughly is you have an idea from main sort of geographical features you want to connect together. So from Lake A to Lake B. Mm-hmm. You, you kind of just walk through the forest and obviously looking at the maps, the, the top of the maps and figuring out like what's the natural line between the two, where would you want to go? Even thinking about things like views, like is it possible to get a view or, or that mm-hmm. sort of thing? Or you don't want to have too steep a sense. You, you flag this route out that you decide on after considering a few options and you, you start digging really. You, you're kind of aiming for the bent out. If you imagine you're kind of creating flat ground from a from a slope. Yeah, you're sort of pulling the soil from the back, bringing it out to the front and trying to get this sort of flat surface. But also not too flat. You know, you want to have it slightly slightly leaning down the slope so that water can run off. For sure. Reinforce it with some rocks. And, and it, var- it varies a lot as well. Um, sometimes it can be really quick work, particularly if it's quite a shallow slope. And, you know, it might be quite easy to do. But if it's really steep, it becomes quite hard to get the the bent ground stable. But then also, I mean, the, the worst nightmare is your is your root. Uh, the root system can be really difficult mm-hmm. in some of the forests. It can go from being really quick work to uh, then suddenly uh, you're 
going through quite tough terrain. But yeah, it's really physical, but hugely rewarding. It's one of the the coolest hiking experiences I've had is helping like scout a section, deciding that we're going to build this section along here, and then actually putting in the work and seeing every day the length of purpose-made trail get a little bit longer until you're finished. And then you actually get to go and hike it and walk it. it it's an um, incredibly rewarding process. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, having read about some of your other projects and trips that you've done, like the one that you did in Kyrgyzstan and then Project Armenia, which was mapping new climbing routes. I feel like there's not a lot of people on the planet that I could say, okay, so you're in the process of mapping and creating access to places that haven't been that easy to access before. How does it feel to be creating access to these places and then thinking about the impact that that might have on these locations with regards to tourism? I know this from my own personal experience of trekking, that I've gone to places that previously went from nobody was there. And then all of a sudden, there's this mass influx, which is not necessarily going to be the case here. But just how do you navigate some of those things, making sure that the infrastructure that's going into place is sensitive to the ecosystem, also the people that are living there? And and how do we sort of navigate that part of this unfolding of somewhere completely new to access and explore? I mean, it's something I've, I've thought a lot about, gone through. I mean, same thing as what, what you just said, where at the start, I was like, ah, you know, it's not something I need to worry about because it's unlikely for that to happen here, right? It's Armenia, it's the middle of nowhere. I mean, most, most people, yeah, I, I don't know. In the US, there's a larger death for population mm-hmm. of Armenians there. But in the UK, there there's a population, but the number of people that you speak to who have no idea where Armenia is mm-hmm. or didn't know that it was a country it's hard to imagine that's going to become like a really you know popular destination where you're going to be having to think about like serious effects on the environment and the effect on people's lives there but i mean shockingly after that first year of doing the through hike i went for the next three years every summer mm. it was quite incredible actually the rate of change that happened that is in you know no way because of me and me doing my through hike. That's not the case. It's because of the work the TCT's done. They've done an absolutely like fantastic work. It's quite incredible the pace that would they've been able to go from this idea of a trail and then having this published route where people are just going to hike it now. How they worked was they started from two focus points. So one in the north northern Georgia with on the border of Russia or near Megri, and then. Uh, in Armenia, it was in the place I mentioned, in Dilijan. For the Dilijan section, at least, it was building like a little circular route, actually a little circular trail in the national park there. We built quite a significant section of that in that first year when I was there. I did the trail, stopped halfway, did a bit of work for two weeks, finished my through hike, and then actually spent the next two months back in Dilijan doing more trail work. And then I came back the following year and did more other areas too. It was quite amazing to see the change from there being literally nothing there, no trail there, to people actually going and hiking it. Who are, you know, they're, they're adventurous, but it's adventurous in that they're going to somewhere that is off beaten track a little bit, mm-hmm. but actually are also not the people who would want to go do a, an exploratory through hike where there isn't really a trail. 
it was quite amazing the change change of mentality required to go to that same location that I had that I had gone through. For sure, you start to see a little bit of an impact in terms of footfall and, and things like that. But the, the you know the trail is still a very young trail. It's still a very low traffic trail. The whole transportation trail. You know, not many people do it, but there are focus points like in Dilajan where it is more popular and. Even back then, I you know came across a little bit of rubbish and things like that. Mm-hmm. There's kind of two ways where my my head goes. Where one is about that impact on the environment, the littering and things like that, which there's no excuse for. It's also, I mean, in some ways, it's kind of uh, an unavoidable thing, and because you've got to do everything you can to stop people doing that and educate people in not littering and things like that, but. Well, my point is that kind of goes with the territory. If you're going to publish something, if you're going to build a route, you've got to be prepared for there to be some kind of impact. And it kind of leaves a bit of sort of con- contrasting feelings. The other bit is from my side of the experience where I went through this landscape, had an incredibly unique experience where I was hiking through areas where they, they don't see hikers or they've not really ever seen hikers before. They don't know what you're doing. They're wondering why you're there. Why are you alone? That sort of thing. Where are you going? I'd be, you know, in the middle of nowhere, like really remote areas. There are people that are called Yazidis who they live up in the mountains through the summer, sort of live off the land and the animals, move, move from place to place. And they would just invite me in into these little shelters that they build, pop, pop them up and then take them down and, and move to the next place. And basic kind of shelters and uh, they, they would treat me like like family really they would mm-hmm. give me food and and water and coffee lots of vodka as well <laughs> and uh, you get these really kind of intimate experiences as, as someone who is having an early journey through the area as, as you publish you know routes and it becomes more of a formal trail and more and more people do these journeys the way in which those people experience the route changes because mm. There's only there's only so many people that the, that the locals can invite in, right? It's something that also you shouldn't expect, right? Because they're they're doing it from the kindness of their heart, and they also refuse to take any money or something of to say thank you. Yeah. And and so what I describe and like what I said in my talk about my experiences, and maybe is what persuades someone or someone sees as a reason to go take a similar journey through Armenia and Georgia. Over time, they're not going to have those same experiences because the type of commitment required decreases because the amount of information increases. There's just more information. Mm -hmm. But also maybe how you interact with the local people also changes because you aren't so committed. You know where you can resupply. You don't have to ask people or you don't have to. uh, People don't invite you in as much because they, they, they just can't anymore. The novelty is removed, maybe. There's that contrasting aspect I've had as well. And I, it's really difficult because in the extreme sense, you could say, well, this gives an opportunity maybe for locals to, you know, build guest houses and it brings a new economic opportunity for them if, if they choose to pursue it. It's, it's absolutely their choice to do that. And, but, um, as a traveler and, and, you know, this is a completely selfish way of looking at it, but the experience I had is the experience I would want again. 
I wouldn't want to go through that landscape and be, you know, offer guest houses and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. But it's also, you know, you can't, you can't expect people to not take the opportunities and not develop. Do you, do you understand? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that the, this is just, it's a part of it all. You know, the shifting and changing of landscape, our relationship to it, the relationship of people that live there. This is the game of tourism, right? When we open up new spaces, it's absolutely their prerogative to to see that as a way to diversify the economy and to make money from it. I think one of the things that I've always reflected on in terms of when I've traveled alone, and I know that this has been a common experience for a lot of people who have, especially if you if you're choosing to travel in a way that is not common, <laughs> like yeah. you know, walking for fifteen hundred kilometers across <laughs> two countries, like you did. Um, I know this from other people who've gone on adventures. I think there was I remember meeting Johnny, and he was active in London around the same time that I think we were presenting. He had this adventure that he had undertaken called the great game expedition i don't know oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and yeah. you know i remember talking to him he drove from the uk to china and back really cool idea i think he had all these and you'll know this from going on expeditions and even we talked about it in terms of what you were expecting when you went you overlaid your maps you went to these locations and you were like what? <laughs> this is not what I expected. Yeah. You know, we go on these expeditions and these trips with hypotheses of what it's going to be like or what we're going to experience. And the reality of going is that we need to release those expectations and just let it take form. I remember him coming back and he had a whole list of things that he wanted to do on this trip. And he said the one thing that stuck with him was the overwhelming kindness of strangers. To me, that's not the first time I've heard that. I've experienced that myself. I'm hearing you echo that. And I think that that is a beautiful reminder of the humanity that we share. And that if you come across someone, you're like, what are you doing here? That invitation to just come in and there's a a give and take there, even though they're not taking money, even though you'd love to give it to them, they're having a conversation they're laughing with you, you're sharing stories. Like that to me is a gift in and of itself. Yeah. That's the wild thing, right? Because I couldn't even speak the language when I was there. They were inviting me in. You know, we had this language barrier, but we were kind of communicating by hand signals, really. And, and over time, I, I learned bits of Armenian and can sort of communicate a little bit. How, you know, like hand signals gets you a long way, I really. Despite the the language barrier, they still treated me with complete kindness. And in the same way described with John, I I wanted to do this walk. That was my main aim. And then, you know, the stuff on the side about contributing to the project made it more appealing as well uh, and leaving a bit of a mark. And yeah, that driver for the surgery, it it was kind of a bit more of like a physical challenge to start with. But actually, when I was there and after, the thing I enjoyed the most i i love the walking i love the landscape but it was the experiences i had with complete strangers them, them inviting me into their homes and eating food and getting an insight into, into their lives and me trying to share a bit of explaining what i was doing and they'd want to know where i was from and, and things like that those were by far the, my favorite experiences and the, the ones i kind of hold on to the most 
I think that's so beautiful. And you've got this surprising part now that you've been on several solo trips and that's become a part of the experience for you. You then got this bit when you come back into where you're living and working and operating and then how to share that story with other people, right? Like, how do I get across to you how transformative this was? And, you know, we've got very kind people in our lives, parents, friends, siblings who are willing to listen (laughs) to our stories. But then there reaches a limit where they're like, okay, are you good? One of the things that I'm really curious to ask you about was public speaking. Was that something that you had planned to come back and then share your story in that format? Was it something that came naturally to you? Were you comfortable on stage? Or was that something Uh, that you had to, a hurdle that you had to get over? I'd just love to talk a a little bit about that. (laughs) Answering a question at school was my like, you know, putting my hand up to answer a question was an absolute nightmare. (laughs) Uh, Public speaking, I, I was really bad at and really struggled with. By the time, you know, I was in sixth form, I was doing a little bit more. I was really lucky. I had some opportunities that kind of helped me develop that a little bit. But I I still found it really difficult. It didn't come to me naturally at all. Something I've put a lot of work into. And and actually, the putting work into it is not something I wanted to do. It was more I kind of realized how, how significant the impact could be on in terms of in my life generally, you know, working. And I was particularly bad at being in groups with people. Even now, I can speak very easily with, you know, one-on-one with friends, but going to the pub and being in a group of people, I just feel like I've got nothing to say. And, you know, mm-hmm. I just don't, don't really want to interact. But doing the TCT, I had no intention of sharing like public talks or any lectures or that, that sort of thing. Yeah, at the time, I didn't even, I didn't have an Instagram or any social media, but I was like, ah, it was on the way to our meeting. I just set up an Instagram and decided I'm just going to like, there are some photos along the way mm-hmm. when, I, when I get when I get signal. The PCT people started sharing it and people started following me. And by the time I had finished, people seemed to be quite invested in this random person doing a walk. And <laughs> when, when I finished, someone asked, the very same day I, I finished, I put a post out. One of the people who said congratulations said, oh, do you want to come give a talk at Explore Connect, which is this organization in the UK that posts these kind of adventure stories. And so, I mean, I just said, yeah, kind of went on a whim. Did it. And then I ended up giving a, quite a lot of talks and actually quite enjoyed it because I found that it's a lot easier to talk about something when you like really care about it and are pretty passionate about, about mm-hmm. it, which is, you know, unsurprising when you think about it. <laughs> uh, it's very true because it's one thing to get up and present about something at work or at school that you're not really invested in. And I think the big difference, too, I mean, I was very hesitant I actually, my first presentation, I say in inverted commas, I ended up doing because the person who was supposed to do it canceled. And I <laughs> I was like, oh, and had to just get up and tell the story. And I think I was probably like a bouncy ball that someone threw around the room. And <laughs> I don't know, yeah. probably gave no one any turning indicators or anything like that. But I found being able to speak from experience and about something that you're passionate about does make a huge difference. So it's one thing to be, hey, here's a topic that you need to present on and get up in front of people. And it's another to share your story. For me, it gave me a lot of confidence because I, like you said, uh, you're your own expert. Those were my experiences. I always struggled with confidence in public speaking or, or with talking in front of other people. But with that, 
I could only have confidence because they were my experiences. So I I felt able to just absolutely. I was still nervous before talks. And, yes, of course. You know, you know, with the jitters and stuff. But over time, I've not given the talk for a little while now. But so I think I'd probably get a bit bit nervous now. But when I was giving lots, you definitely feel a little bit of adrenaline beforehand. But I I couldn't believe how how used to you know I got the the, the like the journey through. Was, was really incredible and I, I really enjoyed actually trying to figure out how to tell the stories and mm-hmm. like co- like a compact way that is also truth you know truthful but also gives you the big full picture without leaving stuff out but is also entertaining and quite enjoyable I, I had no intention of doing it but found out I, even though I found it stressful at the start and quite nervous I, I did enjoy it and did have a good time doing it so I just kept on doing it yeah and I think it's really amazing I I mean, I had been to a few talks previous to getting into public speaking, but I didn't realize how active a circuit there is for people to come and talk about their lives and about adventure. And there's so many different groups out there that are interested in what they're interested in. And I think it's a really nice opportunity to connect with people. I don't know about you, but my favorite part was always the Q&A at the end, because that really shows you what are the things that people were engaging with while you were talking, because something that may have been like really meaningful for you can be lost on someone else, but they might pick up on something really random that you had just put in in passing. (laughs) And they're like, well, what about this? And you're like, oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Let me dredge up that memory (laughs) and kind of, you know, delve into that a little bit more. So I always found the the conversation at the end really fascinating to just sort of delve in more. And it usually, as I said, brought out things that I hadn't thought about. Yeah, the, the the Q&As were always really interesting because sometimes people ask a question and you're like, this sounds like they, they might actually go there and, and do something similar. It happened a few times where I recognized people's names and then their faces when, you know, I didn't see stuff on social media from later on there. They're in one of the trail crews. It's quite cool that you, you could kind of see the, the impact that they heard about this thing through you and they actually were so interested that they went on, kind of made their own stories kind of like related to it and had their own experiences there. Definitely of the mindset that I would rather have five people show up who were extremely engaged than a hundred people who weren't. And it's really awesome to, as you said, get that feedback to see that someone came to a talk of yours and then decided to go and have their own experience of it, whatever that ends up being, right? As we were talking about earlier in terms of them going on that trip, you're telling your experience, they're maybe expecting it to be the same, but then they're going to have their own unique experience of that landscape of the people. And that's just really cool that they're going to have a very different experience than you did. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just mindful of time. I'd love to know, first of all, did you have a favorite age group that you presented to? Because I know like me, you presented to adults, you presented primary, secondary school. I'm just curious if you had a favorite. I don't know. I mean, that it was enjoy- enjoyment in different ways. The kids, I mean, just like pure enjoyment, really yeah, sharing the stories because the simple stuff, you speak to a group of adults and they kind of breeze past. For, for kids, they're like, you know, they can't believe it. It's like amazing that you you were a few meters from a bear or like, mm. you know, 
they're like they're like pure pure sort of amazement at certain things was, was really fun and like how did you get away with not bathing for <laughs> however many days <laughs> yeah 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 I, yeah that's true yeah I think uh, I, I got more satisfaction maybe with the adults in small groups like these Explorers Connect events or you know, Tales for Adventure mm-hmm. because there are a keen group of people who are, are like genuinely interested and maybe more likely to actually go to those places and have a, a similar experience. And afterwards, you know, you stay for a drink with them and you have these really kind of in-depth conversations where they're asking you like really specific information. Mm-hmm. You then find out some interesting stuff about them that they've done their own cool stuff, which is fun to hear. But I, I did some stuff for university clubs as well, which was really satisfying too because because I was speaking while I was actually in a university club and was having those experiences and knew like you know what other people in those clubs were were actually doing and what level of experience they had it was really cool to be able to share with them the information and like you can go do these things if you want and and see people eventually actually try and go and do that as well. Mm. So, so cool. So you're celebrating finishing this two-year part-time degree. You've got your full-time job. You just come back from this five-week trip. What's next for you in terms of living out this passion for exploration and trails and and bringing all of these things together? I'd say I don't know. I found the last two years really difficult. Uh, I feel like I've just been stressed. 24-7 between working full-time and like trying to give my best at work and then trying to do my best for the masters mm-hmm. as well I feel, i'm a bit of a perfectionist I, I just find it like it really irritates me if i don't give 100 percent to something you know inevitably you probably don't end up doing perfectly anyway and then also you end up really burnt out at the end right very very burnt out so i've kind of been i'm definitely craving adventure but I've had absolutely no time to plan the next thing. This five-week trip that I just went on was, I was rock climbing predominantly. I do have some ideas. Like, I think at the moment I'm a bit walked out, to be honest. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> uh, I, 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 I thought after two years, I want to go do another long trail, but I just don't really have the craving that I did back then. That's not to say I won't again. I think I'm more, just because of, what I'm obsessed with at the moment is climbing. I'm more interested in doing something around that, doing a big walling trip or going somewhere adventurous and doing some new routing. How exactly that looks, I don't really know, but it will involve some kind of journey to get there for sure, rather than you know it being like a an easy access cliff. I'd want to kind of do some kind of a long journey with i've had some ideas like doing it by river or by by horseback or, or something like that i don't i don't really know but i want to kind of mix the journey aspect that i really love and and uh having interactions with people that are unplanned that's the sort of thing you get from slow travel through walking but then mix that in with the climbing aspect that i'm really enjoying doing at the moment and i'm still trying to figure out what that actually looks like yeah, well, I mean, watch the space, everyone. I think that sounds awesome. And I think, too, I mean, we didn't really get to delve too much into Project Armenia today. But for people who are listening, definitely check out that expedition that you did in 2019. There's the website. I'll put a link in the show notes. But yeah, so we'll be we'll be watching to see what you end up doing. And I think it's 
pretty amazing to just let things shift and change as, as we shift and change. Just because you were really passionate about something before doesn't mean you can't find new and other ways of doing it. I'm excited to see how that unfolds for you. Yeah, me too. We'll, we'll see what, what exactly is I do. Just as we wrap up here, I'd love if you could tell us your chosen cause for this month's recreation donation and what will that be supporting? Yeah, I mean, we've been talking about doing the through hike through Armenia and Georgia, and that was with the, the Trans-Caucasian Trail, which is now a an actual trail which you can go hike. And there's all this information on their website, transcaucasiantrail.org. But yeah, I mean, they're, they're an NGO, so they're the ones who are putting up the blazes, putting up the trail markers, funding the the new trails and cleaning up the old ones. Yeah, I mean, they take donations where you can contribute in any kind of way, any kind of level, but they give you some, some suggestions on what different amounts will fund. I think like $10 is like a, a helmet for a volunteer on a trail crew, and then $60 is, is one of the tools that you use to actually dig the trail, and then it, you know, it builds up from there. They're a great organization, they're great people, um, and it's a really cool project. So it's definitely yeah worth looking into. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for choosing it. Before I let you go, I've got one more question. What do you think is the meaning and purpose of life, the universe, and everything? I've been stressing the old day, actually. <laughs> I, I, I don't even... I don't, it's... I've had all kinds of answers, Val, so no pressure. You can also say pass. I mean, the thing I value really is, again, you can sort of choose it as purpose, but it's just like experience, just experiencing things, I think, feels like the thing that drives me and definitions kind of relates to purpose of your life but being open to experience things and yeah not not trying to tailor it to just be good living with a bit of freedom where you're kind of open to it possibly going bad as well like this is kind of why i the trails have really doing these long journeys have really clicked for me because you're putting yourself in a position where you can it's almost like slipstreaming into this way of living where Everything is turned up to 11 in terms of whatever positive experiences you have are going to be really positive and then whatever negative experiences are going to be really negative too. I guess the purpose of maybe is just like being open to experience and just experiencing lots of different things. The meaning of life, I that's something else. Like I don't know if I can answer that. That's the perfect answer for you, Val, and that's what it's all about. So thank you so much for being, you know, brave enough to answer it in some way, shape or form. And thanks so much for your time today. I really enjoyed learning more about the adventures you've been on, but also the the beautiful part of having these conversations for me is that they feel like the type of conversations I would have if I was traveling they're the ones that are a little bit deeper. They go a little bit beyond the surface. And so I really want to say thank you for for sharing all of this with me today and with our listeners. And once again, I'm just really excited to support the TCT as the cause for this month. Yeah, great. Thank you. This month's recreation donation is in support of the Transcaucasian Trail. As you now know from exploring with Val and I in this episode, this organization has been his foundational partner in creating and maintaining over 1,500 kilometers of trail across Armenia and Georgia. What began as trail creation for hikers 
has now become a rare platform for cultural exchange, promotion of rural economic opportunities, environmental protection, and creating cross-border connections in a region divided by conflict. Your support will positively impact not only the trail development, but also the Caucasus Conservation Corps, which brings together young people from across Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Georgia to work on trail development, environmental protection, and sustainable tourism projects. By donating, you're helping to create a new generation of conservation leaders in this region that are focused on building a peaceful, prosperous, and sustainable future. Whether you can volunteer your time, money, or your voice, we hope you will head over to our Patreon page to find out the different ways you can support their unique version of Recreation for the World. Please take the time to let us know what the stories we explored in this episode meant to you, and if you do take action to support this month's cause, thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Recreation to Recreation. If you, or someone you know, has a unique and inspiring story to tell, make sure to reach out so we can share it with the world. Until next time, keep happy, keep healthy, and keep exploring.